While I'm being recorded, let me just remind you that Teresa, our church secretary, says that there's no food allowed in the sanctuary at any time. I'm just glad as I survey the sanctuary today that no one's actually eating. Welcome to Exodus tonight. We're starting off a new series. Here's the universal Christian way of saying, be quiet and pay attention. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you tonight that we are gathered in your name. And I know we're here for a serious purpose, and that's to learn more about you so that we could equip ourselves to tell other people about you. So Lord, as we always pray, take this time and set it aside for the next hour. May we open our minds and our hearts, set aside distractions, and really hope to grow in our understanding of who you are. Thank you, Lord, for the things that you've provided for us, the things that we take for granted in our everyday life, including this time, Lord, that we have together. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this time and multiply it and use it for your purposes in ways we could hardly imagine. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So tonight, the long-awaited series that we've been wanting to start for a while is talking about heaven and what will it be like in heaven. The reason I'm excited about this series is because I think that we're going to learn some things that are probably going to surprise you, but I want to stay true to our method of study in Exodus. So what that means is a couple of you have already asked me, how do you get this book that we're kind of using as a, I want to say as a textbook, because it kind of is like a textbook. It's thick. It's got a lot of sites and quotations. It's a uh, it's Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, all right? Um, some of you have already got it. You can get it if you want to. You don't have to. I'm going to buy another copy in a week to have as a loaner to loan out to different people. You guys know that our normal method of study that we've adopted for the last few months has been to have a subject matter expert kind of dive into whatever topic we're studying and present part of the material. What I've decided for this series on Heaven is I want something a little different from our subject matter expert. We're going to pick one tonight to maybe be our expert for the following week and the week after. I want you to serve as a foil. And what that is, is somebody who's going to kind of push back on some of the things we're going to be talking about. Okay? As an introduction to this topic, it's a little controversial. There's a lot of people who are going to side with the, well, that's speculation. That may not be biblical. I don't know where you got that. I'm not sure you're interpreting the Bible correctly. So... Your job to be thinking, debating, intelligent people is to foil anything that I say, you know, kind of act like an opposite, a pushback, a backstop, so that you can kind of object or disagree. But I really don't think you can do that intelligently unless you've probably read the same material that I'm covering. So we're going to pick somebody. Next week, we're going to be talking about the intermediate heaven. And if someone wants to volunteer for that later on tonight, you guys... That'll be the person you guys, I can tell you what chapters I'm going to be covering. Not only will you learn something deeper, because obviously you'll cover a lot of material, but also I think it's more healthy when someone stands up and says, well, can you justify that? Can you back that up so you know that it's not just my opinion? Okay. All right. Last week we had a little mini introduction to the topic. I took a little survey and asked you guys some of your attitudes and opinions about what we might expect in heaven. That was kind of fun to read the results. So tonight we kick off and we're going to delve in tonight into the foundational things that we're going to use, okay? We're going to throw out some topics tonight that we're going to use as we keep going for you to understand a little bit more, okay? Feel free to stop anytime and ask questions. This is a discussion group. It's supposed to be, even though we're presenting it more in a lecture format while we go through heaven. Just, that's the material, okay? So let's go to our first slide tonight. Let's start with what we are not studying, okay? Just to kind of frame the subject of heaven, okay? So that our topics and even our questions and our debating doesn't fall into these categories. Let me tell you what we're not studying. We are not going to study the end of the world, okay? 
That's not quite what we're doing, all right? In our topic of heaven, we're going to be assuming for the time being that all of us are just going to die at some point before Jesus comes back. Okay, so we're not having a discussion about the rapture. We are not talking about the millennium. We are not debating post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, and amillennial views. We are not going to be talking about interpretations of apocalyptic literature and making predictions and prophecies about when the exact time Jesus is coming. If you want that, Calvary Chapel has numerous churches. That's all they do, spend their whole life trying to figure it out. We're not doing any of those things, okay? The reason I say that is because a very important thing has happened on the way to our studies about heaven. The something that happened on the way to heaven is we spent so much time as a church, and I don't mean as New Song Church, but I mean as a church body united across the globe, talking about the things I just said we're not going to talk about, that nobody ever got to talk about heaven. We spent so much time debating what the rapture was, what the millennium was, when the end of the world was. We spent so much time making cheesy movies like that, what's that movie with Kirk Cameron? The Left Behind series, you know, is sold so much in Christian literature. But we spent so much time as a church debating topics about how long will the millennium actually be? Is it a literal thousand years? When is it going to happen? Is it before the rapture? Is it after the rapture? Is there a tribulation? That you know what, we got lost for a moment in some topics that Jesus gave us without the use of apocalyptic literature at all. Now, when I use the words apocalyptic literature, you I just so I can define it, we're talking about parts of Revelation that seem like they need interpretation. Parts of the book of Daniel, for example, when there's visions of certain types of creatures and events that don't seem quite clear. But I do want to also footnote for a second that there are parts of Revelation that seem very clear. And we're going to look at some of those verses, okay? But there are also parts that seem like they need interpretation. And like I said, so much debate and time is spent on that that nobody ever got to the ultimate goal. So that's a list of things we're not going to be covering. Let's go to the next slide. Why even study heaven? This is actually a good question that Angela posed last week. And actually it was good enough for me to put together some thoughts on why is it that we want to study heaven? Isn't it just enough that we should just know that it's going to be a great place when we get there and forget about it? Some people will say, we couldn't imagine, so let's just not worry about that. Let's worry about things of this world. But here's some good reasons, I think, that we should study heaven. Number one, too many Christians believe very well-intentioned, but I believe mistaken myths about heaven. Because we are not doing any teaching about heaven, it's being filled in by the culture. This evening, as we were listening to music, I just picked like 10 songs about heaven. I just ran a search of heaven and got all these different songs that came up and just put them all on a CD and burned them and brought them in so that you could listen to different ideas about heaven. The funny thing is the culture is obsessed with heaven and the church is not. So we have adopted, you could call them pagan, secular, whatever you want, ideas about what heaven is about. We've just kind of thought, well, we're not doing any teaching about it. Let's just kind of see what's out there, you know. So they put something like on TV, like the old show Highway to Heaven, and go like, hey, that's a good thing, let's watch that. Or that show that was on TV a few years ago, like Angels or whatever it was, Touched by an Angel. So everybody's like, that's what it must be like. It seems like for some reason, the people who don't believe in God love the idea of heaven and the people who love God don't talk about it. And that's kind of curious. That's one reason to study it. Number two, we spend so much time telling people how to get there and we don't tell them what to expect. That's kind of the theme I told you we we're going to cover over and over. Three, 
we need to be armed with some information about heaven so we can combat some of the lies that Satan puts up about heaven. All right, now what are some of those lies? Some of them are like, you can't figure it out, so don't try. Or heaven just sounds so boring. Don't even look forward to it, okay? I want to hopefully flush out some of those things so we can get excited about heaven. Here's kind of a darker one. Too many people believe they are going to heaven when they are not, okay? That kind of hurts. That's one of the reasons we should know what the entrance requirements are for heaven. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about some of those. Okay? We talked about the entrance requirements from a Christian perspective. We talked about why does God allow someone to go to hell? We talked about why people go to heaven and why people go to hell. And we'll continue that theme a little bit, but let's just remember that in the secular world, everyone's going to heaven, right? I mean, if you're trying to explain to your little three-year-old girl where mommy went when she died, you just say what? Mommy's in heaven. Okay? Without any regard to what the entrance requirements are for heaven or whether you've met any of the tests that God puts forward about who can go to heaven. It's just a simple way of saying to somebody, mommy's in heaven. You go to a funeral and a lot of people are standing around and the, and the comment you hear ever, over and over when they're trying to console themselves is, well, they're in a better place. Irrespective, again, of is that person following the entrance requirements that God lays down for heaven or not, it's just comforting for us to say, they're in a better place. You know, It's better than saying, Oh, their life got snuffed out now and they're in a really bad, bad, horrible, <laughs> burning place. We just say they're in a better place. It's part of the denial we like to live in, you know. But if you think we've got denial, you should see how much denial the secular world has about heaven. That's why they love it so much. That's why everyone goes to heaven. That's why little babies, when they die in the operating room, they just become angels, right? That's what people say. Why? Because it's a way of comforting ourselves from something that's very difficult to comprehend. So one reason of studying heaven and who goes there and who doesn't is because there are some people who are walking around who want to believe in it, but are believing the wrong things about it. This is a touchy subject, but I think if we're going to be true Christians and take on matters as deeply as we say we do, we got to take this one on. Here's another one, another reason to study heaven. God wants us to yearn for heaven. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose for our lives. It's not to be here, it's to be in heaven. And he wants us to know what it's like. I mean, if, if God spent a lot of time, and, and a lot of people think he didn't, but God spent a lot of time in the Bible trying to describe what his home and our ultimate home is like. We're not studying him. And finally, the last one, which is a personal one I told you and you hear, you've heard it from me, is many people just don't look forward to heaven. And I'm one of those people who, before I started reading this book and investigating this topic and studying all the things that are, the citations and the verses that are in this book, just didn't seem like a place I really wanted to be. I was doing pretty good here on earth. Okay. And last week, this seemed to resonate with a lot of us as we did a little introduction on heaven. It seemed like the only time ever people ever yearn for heaven is we're in that midst of that just stricken grief where they're lying on the floor in their room just going, God, take me now. But as soon as things get better, it's like we're back to living on earth and everything's okay. So if the secular world has denial in what happens after life, we kind of have denial in this life. We kind of think everything's okay in this world, everything's fun. Then we find out how horrible in those moments are. Could be a breakup, could be a death, could be a loss of something big, could be a moment where you find out somebody's ill. Something happens and suddenly you're like, oh, now I yearn for heaven. Now this world isn't good enough anymore. I think there should be other reasons we yearn for heaven. Maybe it's because of what's laying ahead for us if we follow Jesus Christ. Here's a great quote that I'm going to use. Next slide if you could, Anthony. It says, and this is a quote from John Eldridge, Nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity 
is an unending church service, he says. We have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky. (laughs) One great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks. Forever and ever, that's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and feel guilty that we are somehow not more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. I love this quote because it summarizes, in my opinion, a large number of Christians today. It starts with the idea that we think it's going to be like a big sing-along in the sky, standing at the throne of God over and over and over, doing nothing but praising and worshiping forever. Now, some of us like to sing, but even those who like music and like to sing cannot imagine worship forever. It's just, just too much. It'll be singing and, yeah, it'll be singing and praising nonstop 24 hours, all right? But look at what John Eldridge also says in here. He, he identifies this thing in us that is what I consider part of the great Protestant legacy, the guilt. As soon as we don't like what we've been taught to imagine, even though that's been wrongly taught, or we have an image we've adopted from the secular world about what heaven's like, as soon as we don't like it, rather than searching the scriptures and saying, what does it really say? Is it really that bad? We just sink into despair and go, I'm just not spiritual enough. Like the idea of singing forever is not appealing to me, so therefore I must not be as spiritual as that guy standing next to me in church raising his arms like that guy could go forever. You know, you could see him. He's thinking like, oh man, give me more. I'm not done yet, you know. But that's not really a biblical view. And the good news for us is not that we're going to be singing forever. The good news is that we shouldn't feel unspiritual. God didn't create us to do these things. Okay? He created us for other things. Now, he did create us to sing and worship and pray, and we're going to break that down. What does that mean? But he did create us for other things. But notice, we start off with a wrong conception. Rather than finding the truth, we end up just feeling guilty and unspiritual about it. We kind of lose faith. And then the last line kind of says, we lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. Look at, isn't that weird? Christians are the ones living for this world because we just don't like the next world and what it sounds like. And yet all the people who are not going to get to go, they're the ones who are waiting for it. That's so backwards. We have to correct that view. But we do have to admit that we love this world a little too much sometimes, okay? And part of that is bad. The Lord tells us about that. But part of that, and I want to start to identify this theme and bring it out slowly, part of that is the way we're wired. Part of that is the way God created us. God did not create us to sing forever. He did create us to sing He did create us to love music, maybe. But that doesn't mean we have to do it forever. There are other things that God created, and we tend to make these things unspiritual in our own minds. I want to start to debunk that as we go through this series. To learn that some of the things that we think are unspiritual are actually things that God wants us to do, actually enjoys watching us do, loves to see us do. I don't think he created us just to sing forever. So how did our heavenly views get so skewed? How did our understanding, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but let's go through these points. Number one, we don't talk about heaven in our churches. We talk about making sure you get there, kind of like fire insurance, you know, like make sure you have Jesus Christ so you don't go to hell, all right? But we don't really talk about the, the other part, like, and then when you get to heaven, it'll be like this. Sure, we talk about streets of gold and people celebrating and a big feast of the lamb, and that sounds really exciting, but what do you do after the first five hours? 
You know, you show up, there's like a big wedding feast, and then you're done. Are you just going to stay at the table the whole time? Or is it like, okay, suckers, you're here, you got the wedding feast, now go over there and sing forever. Like, what is that all about? That's about the depth that most sermons will go in to talk about heaven. They'll stop kind of at the first day there, maybe. Or we talk about the judgment. Then there'll be the judgment, you get your rewards, you get your entry pass. It's like we're in, and like, end of the sermon. So we're left kind of with this gray, misty, cloudy, foggy image of what it's going to be like. Second point I have is, is something that I realized in reading some of the topics that Randy Alcorn puts forth, is that this topic is even talked about in seminaries. He goes through a survey of all the different subjects that are covered, but heaven is rarely one of them. Most theology books, when they talk about they'll talk about all those things we said we're not going to talk about tonight. They don't talk about heaven much. Here's another one. We believe Satan's lie that we, just shouldn't, that we should just live for this life and forget the next one. A lot of us are doing that, so we're not really worried about heaven yet. We convince ourselves that no one can really know what heaven will be like. And, of course, the one we talked about, we've already kind of adopted some of the pagan and heretical views of heaven. Let's go to the next slide. Here's a common objection. I think it's the number one objection that people will throw out when you talk about heaven. And as I've been telling people that I've started to prepare this topic over the last two months to present a, 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 you know, a cohesive discussion about heaven, I got this almost automatically. I didn't, have to say, I didn't have to tell them, by the way, here's an objection. I would say, yeah, I'm reading this book on heaven. It's really cool. And instead of somebody saying, wow, that's really exciting. Tell me about the book. I want to know more about heaven. They would say, yeah, but how could you really know what heaven's like? I mean, what could be in that book? And here's the verse that a lot of people use. And this verse is actually cited quite a bit by people. They'll say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has, con- has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And they say, look, there's just no way. I mean, anything you say is a guess because God is so much bigger than that. And I guess the thing I would say to you first is that there's a lot of things about God that are infinitely big, and yet he still wants us to know who he is. There's no commandment in the Bible that says, I, therefore the Lord, your God, am so big, you will never know me. Or I am so infinite that you better just not read the Bible because you won't get it. Or my commandments are so much better and so much more perfect that you shouldn't try to keep any of them. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. The Bible doesn't say that my ways are higher than your ways, therefore just don't worry about it. It's too much for you. God wrote this whole scripture for us to know him better and to know him intimately. And in the scriptures are words about heaven. Because here's the rest of that verse that seems to be omitted from the topic. The full verse says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. That's the full verse. God has revealed it to us by his spirit. I want you guys to engage in what I think is a little bit of healthy Christian speculation. Okay? Sometimes we're a little worried about stepping outside of the text. But I think that God wants us to hope and to wish and to imagine heaven. And some of that is going to mean we're going to depart a little bit from just pure verses that say, here it is, one, two, three. We may have to add a few things in our mind. And yes, scripture is always our base. And that's also why I want one of you to be reading these texts and, and, and these verses and these other quotes and to say maybe that's a wrong interpretation or I, I read it differently than you did. 
Because the Spirit reveals to us what heaven is going to be like. And I want the Spirit to reveal it to you as well so that we can together seek truth. And I think when you walk into an area where the Spirit is supposed to direct, it's a good idea to have someone testing what you're saying. And that's one of the reasons I think it's biblical that we have this model set up in Exodus is somebody act as a foil for what we're saying. But I want to point out that the verse itself is telling us it's hinting at the fact that he is revealing it, not like, hey, it can't be known. It's saying that without the Spirit, it would not have been known. The Spirit is revealing it to us. Here's another verse. Go to the next slide if you could answer. Here's another verse that's often quoted. Since then you have been raised with Christ, meaning resurrected. Set your hearts on the things above. I used to read this verse. Sounds like one of Paul's holy exhortations that I could never live up to, right? Set your hearts on the things above. You know, like set your things on holy things, you know? Don't think about like houses and cars and all that kind of stuff. Think about like holy things, like... I don't know, hanging out and doing good things for people and feeding the poor and visiting people in jail. That's what it meant. Set your hearts on the things above. That's what we should be longing for in life. Love, things like that, right? Read the rest of the verse. Go to the next slide, Anthony. Here's what it actually says. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not earthly things. This verse is a direct commandment to seek heaven. Read it again. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated. It's telling us where to look, not like some random, like, loftier thoughts, higher thoughts. Like, you know, we're not defining the words things above like they're greater or loftier or smarter or holier. He's actually directing us to look at a certain place. Set your hearts and your minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Where does Christ reside? Where does he sit at the right hand of God? In heaven. And he's actually telling us, this is Paul telling us, this is something you should do. Now that we've been resurrected, now that we have this hope, now that we've been saved, you should long for where you're going. You should long for where heaven is where you will be with Jesus seated at the right hand of God. This is like a great verse that tells us that it's okay for us to think about it. Not only is it okay, it's something we should be doing as a regular discipline in our lives. Think like, hey, whatever's going on, I got a goal. I've got something to shoot for. I've got somewhere that I'm going to be. I need to prepare for that. Okay? It's almost like any other trip you would be taking. You know, as it nears, you probably think more and more about the things you have to do to be there. And then you start to imagine, what's it going to be like to actually be there? What's it going to be like to be in those places? You guys know in a couple of weeks that Lena and I are going to go to the Holy Land. And I know that in Lena's mind, she's probably wondering, like, what's it going to be like? I mean, I've been there. I can think, I can imagine, I can see it. But for her, she's already starting to imagine, what's it going to be like? And I'm sure that nothing that she actually imagines maybe exactly the way it is, unless she's looking at a picture book. But still, even as you start to think about it and dream of what it's going to be like and speculate maybe even about some things, you're doing something that's just anticipating the wonders that you're actually going to see. And that's really what we're supposed to do with heaven in a way. All right, let's dive into some common myths about heaven. One we already kind of talked about. Everyone is going to heaven. It's just that easy. You know, we die, we go to heaven. That's a myth. 
Heaven is our default destination unless we are very, very bad. No, again, here it is. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Revelation 20, 12 and 15 says the following. Everyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be judged by God according to the works they have done and thrown into the lake of fire. If you don't have uh, the saving blood of Jesus, not good. Matthew 13, 41. We see in that verse Christ saying to people who are not covered by his sacrifice, he says basically to them, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So we know that one of the myths that we talked about earlier that the secular world likes to believe is everyone just goes to heaven. Not true. There are entry requirements. Here's another myth. We cannot know for sure if we are going to heaven. This is a, I think this is a total myth. I think this is one of the lies that the devil wants to tell people in the church. That you cannot know for sure if you're going to heaven. You should sweat this one out the rest of your life. More of the Protestant guilt trip, you know. Entrance requirement, easy, but then you've got to work out the rest of your life on the treadmill, trying to make sure you stay fit enough to go. 1 John 5.13. This is John writing, saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There is a certainty that we need to have. Otherwise, all of our teachings about grace and Jesus doing doing all the work and basically providing the sacrifice for our sins is just, is just nonsense. We're just saying it without believing it. If you believe in Jesus, then you're going to heaven. If you believe in a sacrifice and you believe in what he's done for you, you're going to heaven. You can be certain that you're going to heaven where Christ says, if you do this, basically, you will know. And not one of my promises is ever broken and I give you this promise. What does new covenant mean? It means the new promise. I mean, this is the new contract, the new agreement, the new guarantee that if you do this, you will go. The whole New Testament is based on that guarantee. All right, here's some myths. We will become angels in heaven. That is a myth. A lot of Christians believe it. It's not true. All right, angels are a different creation of God. We are human. They are angels. We don't cross over. We don't become one another. I said at the beginning that, you know, some people say, oh, like my baby's like an angel now. Or like your baby may be in heaven, no doubt, but not an angel. Here's another myth. This comes closer to Christianity. We will remain as spirits in heaven. A lot of Christians believe that when our body dies, it stays here. Then we like kind of become a spirit and then we just go up into heaven as a spirit. Now, let me put an asterisk next to this one. We are going to be talking next week about the intermediate heaven and this may or may not be true for some period of time. And we'll talk about the different views about what happens in the interim. But in the end, in the real heaven that we're going to get to, we're going to have bodies. And we'll come back to this point in a second. And finally, the last one I threw up there because we've been talking about it, this big myth, we will do nothing but pray and sing praise songs. Well, yes, of course, it's going to be the person in the group who's going to say, but isn't like everything we do like going to be an act of prayer? Okay, what I'm saying is we're not going to just physically put our hands together and repeat words all day long and sing praises. We are going to do other things. All right. And that's the tantalizing part that I'm going to be telling you about in a few weeks. What are we going to do? Let's do a little bit of theology. This idea we just talked about a few seconds ago about us becoming spirits was basically... Because Plato, the Greek philosopher, was very influential in a lot of places, and especially 
took hold in the early church. One of the things that Plato believed was that material things, including the human body and the earth, were inherently evil, and that immaterial things, such as our souls, were good. A lot of people still believe this to this day. Now, the early church was influenced by these doctrines that he had, and they began to create some ideas and notions that exist in the church today. And you can't just blame the early church because it just seems like throughout the entire history of the church, we've been plagued by the belief that if it's material, it's bad and it's not spiritual. And if it's of the soul, then it's good. We always talk about like the sins of the flesh being even greater, right? We talk, so, so then people make the next extrapolation. Well, that must mean that all material things, the body itself is bad. We're going to leave it someday. We're going to, we're going to, you know, it's going to decay into the ground and hopefully we're going to the next life. You see people that say, hey, you can't take it with you, right? They talk about all material things like that. You can't take it with you. You can't take anything with you. So you should just leave it all behind. So some of the heresies in the church adopted the Platonic view about materialism. They added it in a Christian context and they began to deny, for example, the resurrection of the body, that our bodies are going to be with us in heaven. You'd hear doctrines like, wait a minute, it's going to be a different body. It's going to be a spiritual body, which is different than a physical body. It'll kind of be a body, but it'll be spiritual somehow. Here's what the Bible says. We're going to go into it in just a second. So give me just two seconds to walk through this. When it comes down to it, we need to understand that this one heresy probably does more to confuse our idea about heaven than anything else. When you ask people, why is it that you believe that we'll become angels? is because angels are more spiritual than we are. If you ask why it is that we're not going to be doing certain things in heaven, like having houses and driving cars, well, that's because that's what this world is made of. This world is evil. In heaven, you do spiritual things like sing and worship and those things. You know, you sit on clouds all day, okay? Because this world is evil. But you got to remember that was not God's plan for this world. And just like God could save you, he could just as well save this world. Just like he could save our souls, he could save our bodies, he could save this earth and he can recreate it. But let me just underscore this. Here's the reality of the resurrection. Just a, a statistic to start. Of those Americans who believe in this statement, the resurrection of the body belongs in one of the creeds. Two-thirds believe that they do not have bodies in the next life. That's a contradictory statement. If you believe in the resurrection of the body, when you read that statement in, a, in the, like the Nicene Creed, it means your body will be resurrected and you'll be in it again. Okay, It's part of you. It's not like a shell. You're not like a crab that walks out and leaves the shell behind. All right, This is you. You look at the creation story in Genesis, two very key things happen. God creates from the dust and then he breathes the soul, but they're like, the two together are what man is. We don't get to just separate them and go, hey, in heaven, I'm just floating around like a ghost. Your body is just as much part of it. If you have any doubts about this doctrine, read, Corinthians, read 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, If you doubt that there's any resurrection of the body or what it's going to be like, just read 1 Corinthians 15 on your own. I'm going to cite a small part of it, but the entire chapter is dedicated to the Corinthian church because they were influenced by the Platonic view. They started to believe a heresy that said that Jesus could not be God and man because man 
flesh, human, is evil. So God could only be spirit. And they started creating this whole heresy that Paul had to debunk. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So the point being, we may think this world is bad, and it is. We may think our bodies are bad, and they've done bad things. But God is going to remake everything anew. Was it last week? Yeah, last week during Easter, if you guys were here for any of the new song services, or if you've seen The Passion, they showed that clip from The Passion where Jesus stumbles and falls and his mother runs over to him, you know? And, and you could see like every single person welling up in the, in the you know, but you know what's interesting is that there are some people who get really teary-eyed because they watch the scene between a mother and her child. But for me, the thing that really gets to me the most is Jesus' words when he turns to her and he says, Behold, I make all things new. And that gets to me every time because in that scene, what they did that I love is that when Jesus gets back up after stumbling... He looks like he's hugging the cross, like it's a pillow, his mother. I don't know what it is exactly that he's holding on to in that scene. But the statement, behold, I make all things new, is got to be the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ. That in the moment of sorrow that she sees and all the things that she can imagine in that moment, it's compartmentalized. She sees her son dying and yet he's trying to open her eyes to what is about to happen. I make all things new. He doesn't just mean our souls. He's going to mean our bodies. The new Jerusalem, the new earth, the new universe is all going to be made new because of his saving grace. The curse of Satan exists in the world. It exists in every place. But he is redeeming all of it, not just our souls. And we need to understand that. Because then we can finally free ourselves of that notion that the church has had for so long that our bodies are bad, our souls are good, materialism in this world is bad, the future is all going to be good because there's going to be nothing but singing and praying. And our souls will be floating around like ghosts, on sitting on clouds in some spiritual things with halos hanging over our heads. It is not our future. Our future is better than that. And if your heart doesn't resonate with the future I just described, it's because God doesn't want you to have that future. Let's go to the next slide. Let's talk about Jesus for just a second. It's a good thing to talk about in church. He provides a fantastic analogy and vision and picture of what it's going to be like to have a resurrected body. Now, I did use the word analogy for a reason. We cannot take everything that Jesus does and say, I will be this way, okay? One example I can think of is Jesus in his resurrected body walked through the walls and showed up in the room and just appeared and disappeared. I don't know if we'll have that power in heaven. We may, we may not, okay? But let me just say that I think it would be conservative for us to say that Jesus will be able to do some things that we won't, okay? And maybe walking through walls is one of them, but then again, I wouldn't be surprised if we get to heaven and he says you can walk through walls too. Jesus models for us what our resurrected bodies will be like. 
Look at what Jesus did after he was resurrected. He ate. You remember when he's standing on the shore and he was making breakfast for the disciples? He didn't like walk on the water the way he did before and just kind of float above the water and stand there. You know, he was actually waiting for them on the shore making breakfast. For who? For himself. He was eating. Remember he told them to bring their fish and add it to his. So it's not like, it's not like he, wasn't, he wasn't hungry. So I see in our resurrected Lord, I see somebody who is first, he's got a body. Because remember, even the Marys who didn't recognize him at least called him sir, all right? So at least you know what gender he is. Another thing that we know about him is he walked, he talked, he taught, he ate. Those are good things. Sounds just like it before his death. Here's another thing. People recognized him. Now, there's some speculation about how close his body looked to his original body, but we do know a couple things. He showed the nails in his hands. Now, is that one of the things that Jesus will always bear that will be different? Like our bodies will be more perfect, but his will always have the nails? I don't know. You know what? We all know that we will have renewed bodies, but we don't know the extent of what that means. We know that our bodies will be better, different. They won't die. Okay. They won't have sickness. They won't have illnesses. But does that mean that they'll like all of us will look like the same? Will all of us? I, I don't know. The, and, and this is where I can say we can imagine and we can speculate, and it's okay to do that, but let's come back to the things we do know for sure. What we have to be sure we don't do is make up doctrine that doesn't exist. We can say, all right, now it's time for us to speculate about some things. We can use Christ as an example, and it's a great example to use, but there may be some differences. For example, the nails in his hand, will he always have those? I don't know. Will we be the only ones, like, will he be the only one that has nails to show, and yet our scars will be gone? I don't know. Okay. Will we, he be the only one that walks through the walls? I don't know. Maybe when we get to heaven, they'll be totally different in another way. Like, we'll have other abilities we don't have. Like, will we fly? I don't know. It'd be great to think that we could, but I don't. But th- that's, this is where we go into healthy speculation where it's kind of fun to think about. But in the end, we come back to Scripture, which is we know that he was recognized. We know that his relationship with the people he knew before did not start over. And that's important because people ask, what happens with the people we knew on earth? Well, from his example and the people he knew on earth, he continued right along where he left off. In fact, he goes back to mend fences with Peter as the first order of business and sits down and tries to redeem Peter for having denied him. So it's not like he's like, ah, that was back then, man. I'm resurrected. It's over. No, he goes right back to keep the relationship going where he left off. And he spent time teaching the same things that he was teaching before. So there's a continuity here. Okay. Now, again, we can glimpse into it a little bit. It's not crystal clear because we're using an example of Christ. And in a lot of ways, Christ may be different than we are. But I think there's enough clues here to see that we're not going to be just like disembodied spirits floating around like somewhere like, ooh, you know. Look at this point in Luke 24, 39. Jesus makes it clear to his disciples, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. And he says, touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he was like trying to even tell them, and this is scriptural, like it's been copied into our Bibles to make sure we don't miss this point. I'm not a ghost. Touch me. Okay. It was one of the things that they thought was important enough to write down to become part of our scriptures that we know that Jesus didn't come back as a ghost. We have the example of him on the road to Emmaus and he's talking to the people and they didn't recognize him until he opened their eyes when he broke bread. 
I actually think if you read the text in context, it isn't that they didn't recognize him, it's that their eyes were kept from recognizing him so that they could hear everything he had to say until he finally broke bread. And as you remember, then he like disappears in their midst after that. Um, again, probably a trait that only Jesus has. So if all of these theological points leave your head spinning, just get this one point. The Christoplatonic view left us with a sorry excuse for heaven that this world and all material things were bad, and that our souls were good, and that we were going to divorce them somehow, leave them behind. And the truth is, the point you need to know, our bodies will be resurrected in whatever state they look, whether they'll be perfect, whether they'll be different, but they will definitely be resurrected. We will join again with that body, and that is really what our intention is to be. In the coming weeks, what we're going to be talking about is what is heaven going to be like? You cannot begin to understand or appreciate what heaven will be like if you don't appreciate that you're going to have a body. For example, people who live in bodies don't want to sing all day. Maybe if you're a disembodied spirit, maybe you do that. But people who live in bodies want to eat, want to walk and talk and do other things like sleep maybe. And can you take it even further than that? And we will. We're going to start talking about people living in cities and things like that. And all the things the Bible talks about start to make a little bit more sense when you remember that we're going to be in bodies. Yes, they're perfect in some respects. Maybe it's because they don't die and they don't have illness. Does that mean that everybody will look like a model? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that's what makes it heaven. And, and, and yeah, I don't, I don't know what age we'll be. Like what age would we pick for the resurrected bodies? Everybody get to be 19? You know, is it 30? But here's the point. God can take anything and make it better. And he's going to do that with our bodies. Yeah. We're going to talk about the new earth, but let me just say, let me just give you just one glimpse of that. There is a place that we go in between the time that we actually die and the final place. Okay. I'm going to tell you what the final place is now so you can start to imagine it. You know, in the end of Revelation, the final status is the new earth comes down and we dwell with God where? On earth, okay? We started tonight playing a bunch of songs, you know, the, some secular songs, and the funny thing is they get it right more than we do. That Belinda Carlisle song, Heaven is a Place on Earth, is actually right. Even though what she's trying to say is, I don't want to go to heaven because I could make it good here on earth, which is a false notion of our world, that we can turn this place into a good place without God. But what she doesn't realize is God is going to do exactly what she's singing about. He's going to wipe out this place and make it all good, but we're not living in some 5th, 6th, ninth, 12th dimension somewhere else in heaven. We're going to live here on earth. God will be pleased to dwell with man here on earth. So that's where we're going. Next week, we're going to talk about what happens in between while we're waiting for that to happen. And in a couple weeks after that, as we go through the final, like what our life is going to be like, the questions we're really going to be asking is, when we get to the final place, when we get to heaven, which is really the new earth with, you know, heaven with a big H, here we are on the new earth, what are we going to be doing? And that's when it gets interesting, when we start to ask ourselves the real questions, because, you know, the intermediate stuff, it's interesting, but it will end. And then we will finally be on the new earth, you know. And yeah, somebody still wants to know, where's the millennium fit in, you know? But like I said, you can talk to the Calvary Chapel people, they'll tell you. For us, the real important thing is, where will it be and what will it be like? Let's pray.
Lord, the things that you've given us to ponder are amazing. And Lord, I just pray that you would have your spirit reveal even greater things to us. It's true that so few people get to study this topic. Maybe during this time, Lord, your spirit will work wonders and we'll be able to glimpse into heaven in a way that we'll get excited about it as a group. One thing I'm thankful for, Lord, is that this group will be in heaven and that we'll be there together and that we'll be able to continue our relationship together and that we'll be able to look back and laugh at the times that we anticipated heaven, maybe all the things that we got wrong uh, and how much better it'll be when we're there. But Lord, that doesn't mean we shouldn't look and peer into what we can so that we can better anticipate the place that you've prepared for us. This is your ultimate plan, to save us and to take us into this new earth. And Lord, I just confess that for me, for many, many years, and even now, I've never looked forward to it. I want to look forward to it. I want to yearn for it. I want to live my life for it because it's going to be the place where I spend all of my eternal life. So Lord, I thank you first that you saved us. I thank you for your saving grace that you made it so easy that you took it upon yourself to make all things new. And I thank you that the people in this room are included in what will be made new. I just pray, Lord, that we would have time set aside to help others see it, Lord. That we would have hearts and minds that would be able to explain to others the wonders of heaven and help them to get excited to come along the journey. And Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in those people's hearts so they would accept you and really meet the true entrance requirements for heaven, not the made-up ones that they use to comfort their own hearts. I pray all this in your precious name. Amen.